Hello, you are most welcome to episode 169 of the Game Pit Podcast, a podcast about modern board gaming, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. My name is Ronan, and I am your host today, and I am flying solo, which is very appropriate. You've probably seen the episode name, because this episode is all about solo games as i said last time around there hasn't been too much multiplayer gaming going on in my recent history however on nights and traveling i have taken the time to dive into some solo gaming here and there and over the course of a few weeks i played these six games enough that i thought i could take a a stab at rating them and ranking them and giving you my thoughts on them and what I'm going to do is I'm going to run through them in ascending order. So I'm going to start with the game which I enjoyed the least. I'm going to work up towards a game which I really, really enjoyed. So there's your spoiler. Although I haven't told you what the games are yet. If you haven't read the show notes, you have no idea. So it will be a nice surprise for you. At the end, I'm just going to mention a few games that have come into my collection recently and a couple of crowdfunders that I've backed. They're probably all finished by the time you hear this. But anyway, there you go. Let you know what I've been spending my money on. I'm going to start off with the first solo game, and this one is Nautilion. It's a one mostly or two-player game, around 25 minutes, designed by Shadi Torbay from Z-Man Games, and it's in the Oniverse. Started with Onirim, it's got Castellian and Sylveon and several other games in there, and they are mostly solo game focused, although a lot of them offer two-player rules. Nautilion has got the Oniverse art, and we'll start with that. Sean and I have discussed the universe art before on the podcast. Sean hates it. I haven't always hated it. In Nautilian, I think it's awful. So we'll kick off there. I did not like the look of the game. It really did look childish and poorly drawn. And I don't usually think that. I think there's a charm to the art style. But this one, it just doesn't work. And a lot of the components are too similar looking. That didn't really help me play the game. Getting that out of the way, how do you actually play the game? Well, you set out a chain of tokens. They're between two areas. So you've got the islands, and then you've got where the baddies are coming from, the abyss or what have you. And the tokens all have got numbers on them. And your sub, your Nautilian, starts at one end, and then the baddie sub starts at the other end. And what you're going to do is you're going to roll three dice on your turn. And you're going to move each of those subs, a number of spaces equal to one of the results. And then the third dice is going to go to, to the big bad, if you like, who in most of the versions of the game doesn't actually do anything, just collects one of the dice that you give them, unless it's a three or a four, which is a, a mistake to make. You don't want to give them one of those. There are five variants within the box. I didn't play all five variants. Spoilers. I played the base game a couple of times. I had in the first couple of variants. We'll talk about them briefly. But anyway, what you do in the game is you roll these three dice. So I move my sub a number of one of the dice I've chosen. I move the other sub. And when the other sub lands on one of these tokens, because you just move along the train of tokens, it's a roll and move. They throw that token away. When you land... There are crew numbers, one to nine, and you're trying to collect them within your own little submarine board. And you're trying to fill it up, basically, and get to the end before the baddies get to your happy isles, back to your home. So don't make the baddies move too quickly. And when you start off, you put your first token in. There are ducts on your submarine, and you always have to go adjacent via ducts to tokens you've already placed. There's a basic submarine, which is pretty easy to fill up via the ducts not ducks whack 
and there are more complicated boards as you go through if you want to make it harder for yourself in order to make these connections and and try and plan out which tokens you are actually going to collect and in which order so that they make sense and you're not leaving certain tokens behind isolated and you're unable to place them if the token you land on you either cannot place on your board or you've already got that number on your board then you can put it into reserve and you start with a few tokens in reserve and it's these tokens in reserve you can spend in order to manipulate the dice roll so you can re-roll you can change a number you can swap numbers round, trying to plan out your route across these tokens so if you get nine crew you win if the phantom the baddie submarine gets to the happy isles you lose that's it there are expansions. The first couple of mages and mercenaries, which add extra tokens into the chain. You're still rolling. You're still moving. You can collect them. You can pair up mages with crew members. It gives you special things to do. It still is a roller move. And it's awful because you look at it. You plan what you're going to do. You look and you say, well, all the threes are early in the train, so I have to get a three early. And then all the sixes are late, so I'm not worried about getting sixes just yet. So from the three, I need to get a two or a seven. And you just look at it and go, okay, that's what I'm going to do. No problem. And you roll. And there are three dice to choose from. So generally, you're going to be pretty close to what you want to do. You have tokens in reserve, so you can change things. So there was just nothing to it. And it looked bad. And there was no challenge and nothing changes during the course of the game even though you're rolling dice there are enough dice rolled that you don't never really have to panic you're just like it's okay i'll be able to work that out i'll be able to get it i just I don't know i don't know what what where's the fun in nautilian i can't find it it's like a bad child's game <sighs> 28 out of 100 that's all i have to say about it i've put more effort into playing this then I should have done because it, I, I rolled it in to be one of these reviews and really it should have been a one and done. I was hoping it would improve when I find more and I just didn't. So 20 out of 100, I'm never going to play it again. I'm trying to move it on. Hopefully I'll try and sell it before I release this episode. Okay, the next one. That was definitely the worst game, by the way. From here on in, they've all got some merit in them. Nautilian, I just wouldn't bother playing again. Solar Storm. One to four players, 45 minutes from Aiden Lowther and Dranda Games. You are on a spaceship you are caught in a solar storm rooms on this spaceship there are nine rooms on it it's a grid there's one central room and eight rooms that have powers around the outside you start with some of them damaged and they will become damaged more damaged as the game goes on what you're looking to do and it's wonderful player as a solo game you just play with three as if it was three and you're controlling them all and you've got a shared uh, hand of cards sort of thing what you're trying to do is you're trying to fully repair a room and then spend a load of cards in order to divert the power from that room into the central room and then once you've done that for all eight of the outside rooms you get back to the central room and then you've won the game so on your turn you can take three actions you can move dip dip move around orthogonally that's fine around this three by three grid you can take cards now if you choose to take cards in this way because you get an incoming cards every round anyway you're gonna have to roll a dice and you may or may not get some cards so it's always a bit of a risk you can share cards between characters that are in the same room or you can spend cards. And basically spending cards is what you'll be doing all the time. Because each of the rooms has got uh, three sort of damage markers on there. And they tell you what resource you must spend when you're in that room in order to repair each marker. If you've managed to divert power, you can spend one card and heal them all. That's fine. But also the same cards you need resources you need in order to divert the power. So it's all about managing your hands of cards and spending them in order to get one thing repaired 
and then divert. But it will still continue getting damage because once you've taken your three actions, oh, the other thing you can do, by the way, is you can take action tokens to save up actions for later on, which can be useful if you can't get to where you want to go. The rooms will have special powers as well. And you can use the special powers as long as it's fully repaired. You're spending cards, using the special powers, and then spending more cards in order to divert the power. Once you've done your three actions or taken tokens, you can take up one face-up card from a small market or take two blind. Now, the cards, there are three different resources in the game and a wild, and the number of wilds depends upon how hard you want to make the game. But that's all it is. You're taking different colors of cards and trying to plan ahead what you want to do. Once you decide what cards to take, you're going to flip over a card and there's going to be storm damage. It starts off that you get one storm damage to your ship each turn and then the game accelerates. You start getting two and then you start getting three per turn and it, it basically damages each room. Now, if a room ever takes damage and there's no damage markers left on it, then you have completely lost the game. So you must keep on top of it. Even after you diverted the power, you may well end up having to go back to room in order to repair it in order to keep the game going so the ship doesn't blow up. You win if you divert the power from the eight rooms, get to the middle. You lose if you lose a room, as I just described, or if there's no cards left in the deck. There's a timer aspect to the game. What I found with Solar Storm is it's very hard to set up for the future because you don't know where the damage is going to come in. And when the damage starts coming in, certainly once you get past the initial one damage phase per round, and suddenly you get two at a time, and things can accelerate out of your control. And you might have gone to an area to concentrate on repairing it in order to divert the power, and suddenly you're pulled away. Movement's very hard. Movement's a waste of time. You'd love to be able to just go to a room, do everything you need to do in that room, go to the next room, do everything you can do in that room. There are special powers that can help you move, but they're very situational and they don't often end up getting you out of that. Of, am I going to waste my time moving here because I really, really have to? And then go somewhere and do one bit of repair and then suddenly the damage is done on another bit of the ship and I have to wait to either go around through the characters if you're playing, you know, or, or you get frustrated, basically. You never seem to be in the right place at the right time. Not in a good way. The more damage comes in, you start to feel a real lack of agency. You're being kicked around by the game and you're just reacting to what the game's doing to you. Rather than being able to get on top, put a plan in place and then adapt your plan, you're really constantly just having to put out fires. And to me, it happens too quickly. And while I might get the power diverted from two, three rooms while I'm on top of things, because that game's getting harder and harder and harder, from then, I'm kind of relying on luck of the draw. And luck of how the grid came out, because you, know, you can set it up any way you like, from the centre room with the eight rooms around it. And if it falls into place where the damage is coming in places where I am, or I can be while I'm trying to get to the next thing done, then that's fine. If it's sending me backwards and forwards all over, I'm just not going to win the game. And that's completely out of my hands. It also suffers really from a lack of fun. There's nothing I'm doing here that feels fun. I'm collecting cards, I'm spending cards, collecting cards, spending cards. That's all I'm ever doing. Whether I'm spending them to heal damage or to divert power, the actions are very repetitive. And I very rarely get any payoff. The payoff can only be if I win. There's one big payoff at the end. All the way through, I'm not getting any sort of... It's, it's just constantly damage repair, damage repair, damage repair. I'm not enjoying myself. To be honest, the random elements are, are too strong. And Solar Storm, to me, felt like a first design. It's a design where I have some ideas. It functions as a game. I'm doing stuff. There's nothing unintuitive. There's nothing broken. But 
I haven't found the magic of why. So um, competent, but not enjoyable for Solar Storm. And I've given it a score of 40. The next one is Veil Wraith. Again, a one-player game taking about 40 minutes from Tristan Hall and Hall or Nothing Games. Theme of Veil Wraith. Hmm. I'll, t- I'll give you a quote. You are a remnant of what once was sent back by an impossible twist of fate. Okay. I'll say in terms of theme or indeed plot or arc of Valwraith, we have been given a setting. It describes there's been an end of a world and you are this thing who's gone back looking through the memories, who's being chased by a big bad, and there's a setting, but there is no theme. I don't know what the things are that you're encountering. I don't know why you're encountering them, and I'm not really sure why it's all going on. So that's what I feel like. But, you know, a strong enough setting, but with very sort of vagaries, like sent back by an impossible twist of fate and stuff like that, where you're like, well, I'm not, I don't feel very grounded. I don't really know where I am. But okay. But it does look stunning. It's all black and white art. All of the components are very high quality. Everything's clear. You can see what's going on and it's very well produced. The next positive for it is that it is quick to play. It is much simpler than I thought it would be and it is very easy to understand. Given all of that, I think that that was a surprise to me because it comes in quite a big box and it's not a big game. There's just a deck of cards sort of in there and a few crystals. Those is, the box is too big for what you get. And even though there is an expansion available, I haven't got the expansion, but I, if that, it would need to have nine times the content of the base game in order to fill that box. So I think it's being sold as this big sort of epic experience when I think that is slightly a mis-selling because it's a quick, simple play of a game. But again, it does look beautiful. Okay, what are you trying to do? Well, each game of it is called a vignette. And in the vignette, you're setting up a deck of cards that you're going to encounter. They're set up in sort of five mini decks so that the things you encounter are spaced out, basically, in the correct order. And in each of those mini decks, there's one key. Now, keys are what you need to collect in order to make your way through. Now, I was going to stop there and say it's a bit weird they're called keys. Keys on Irim, other other games with actual doors and keys. They're, they're not keys. They are actually like spirits. They're like, you know, for a better word, people. I'm not sure why they were called keys, and it's a little bit of a throw-off of this theme that doesn't exist anyway. You're like, why are they, are they key memories? Or are they keys to the world? I don't know. I think I'd have changed the name of that. For some reason, I stuck on that. I know it's a minor point. Probably sounds very minor, but to me, it's stuck on that. I'm like, why, why are these called keys? Okay, anyway, let's move on from there. Within this, this sort of threat deck that you're going to go through, you've got things called Anima, you've got things called Deja, and you have specifically Foes. Now, the Anima Deja kind of are things you're going to encounter that are going to help and hinder you. The foes are specific to each vignette, and they go into particular mini decks. So you know they're going to be in the yeah, between 40 and 60 percent through the deck, or in the last 20 percent of the deck. And they are what gives each vignette its flavour because you've got different enemies who do different things. And one of the win conditions is that you must defeat all the foes within the deck before you can win the game. The other thing you have to do is you have to collect all the keys and use them to open up a portal, and then you have to defeat the portal. How are you doing all this? I've told you you're going to go through a deck of cards, but you're basically going to draw one of these each turn and you're going to attempt to deal with it. You have power tokens and you have three actions. There are explore, fight, and influence. Now, the only difference between those, 
you would think could be thematic, but I'm going to come back to why they're not thematic in a minute. But other than that, they are just symbols, and those symbols appear on cards, and the cards tell you you need this amount of strength of fight or explore or influence in order to defeat this threat from the threat deck, and you create it. And theme is completely lacking. Fight does not feel different to explore, does not feel different to influence in any way, shape, or form. So on each turn, you're going to draw this one threat. If that threat ever runs out, you shuffle up your discards and you get the big baddie comes in into the shuffles anywhere in the discard pile. If you ever draw that big baddie, you've completely lost the game. It destroys you. So there's a timer on the game like that. You also get to draw a memory, which is a special power you can use or can combine to increase the power of your actions. So these actions I talked about that are powers one, two, and three at the beginning, although they're upgradable if you play through the campaign of five vignettes. You're basically going to choose one action to use. That one action is wherever it is on the one, two, threes, because they cycle round. That's the power, basic power of it. Now, another, the other thing you can do on your turn is you can power up another action. So you can use one and power up one, and you get an extra power on it. So where this action lies in your one, two, or three isn't necessarily how strong it's going to be. And you also then can then use cards from your hand, these uh, memories, in order to power it up. And why are you trying to do that? Because each of the threats needs you to get to a certain level. Like it might need four influence, or it might need a five fight, or a three explore, whatever it is, in order to defeat it. So you use your one action, you power up your one action, and once you start getting keys, you can use them to do special business as well and, and get sort of more to do. If you use that well enough, you can defeat a threat. If a threat is not defeated, a lot of the time they're going to have a negative effect on you now when, when, once you've done your actions, and a lot of time it's to take away your spirit. You start with 20 spirit. If you ever get down to zero, that's the other way you can lose the game. As well as the big baddie coming out for the discard pile, if you lose all your spirit, you'll also have lost your game of Veilwraith. When you defeat threats, they also have effects, and they will help you out. So, especially foes, you'll, you'll get something for having defeated a lot of the different threats in the game. So you're trying to do collect the five keys, Defeat the portal, defeat all the foes, and you'll have won. That threat deck, there's a variety in what you're going to come across now. It's not endless, and I think probably if you're going to play multiple games of Railwraith, you will want to get hold of that expansion to mix it up a bit. One of the reasons why I'm saying that the actions of Explore, Fight, and Influence don't feel thematically any good or different is because the same threat with exactly the same names, for example, for Hobgoblins, one of the basic ones. But one Hobgoblin might need fight to defeat it, but another Hobgoblin exactly the same will need influence. And another Hobgoblin exactly the same will need explore. And there's no reason. There's nothing to tell you why. This is not like the canny Hobgoblin, and this one is the, the aggressive Hobgoblin. It's just, they're all Hobgoblins. And, and you get a sort of a mix when it tells you to add cards to the threat deck. It's like there might be five in, in the game, you add any three of them. So, okay, you don't know what to expect. And that's kind of cool in a gameplay perspective. But in immersing me, and especially in a solo game where I don't have the shared experience with people and the stories and the nonsense and the jokes and the singing and the whatever else we do in order to make it a sort of, you know, a narrative, it's almost anti-thematic. And for this idea where it's kind of putting you into this world, which has got this kind of wispy description where everything's a bit, oh, yeah, vague and, oh, it's crazy, it's going into the world then ground me ground me in the mechanisms and i'm not grounded in any way make each hobgoblin a fight threat 
And then I know our, our hobgoblins have always got to fight them. Worry, you know, if I know one comes out, that's what I'm doing. And then make something else and explore and something else and influence. That would help bring me into this game. But I never felt like I was wrapped into the game. I never felt like I had any tough choices. I always felt like it was quite clear. Well, I can't defeat any of these, or I can because I can defeat them with this. So I'm going to use that to defeat it. And then this other enemy that's out, oh, okay, that needs influence. Well, then I guess I'll power up influence. So you can plan ahead, but the planning ahead is not that interesting. I never felt like I was pulling off particularly clever moves. Also, as soon as you start getting keys, you start getting like powers that I felt like uh, I'm a bit too powerful. I never really felt under much threat until the foes come out and suddenly the foes are a lot stronger and they could sort of hang around a bit and knock you around a bit. But when I played the first scenario a couple of times, I finished on 19 or 20 health. I was on no threat whatsoever. I mean, there is a particular card in the first vignette which makes it a lot easier. It kind of searches through the deck to get you out keys. So you end up getting the keys earlier then you're waiting for last foe, defeat the foe, boom, portal, done. Yeah, that, that's because it's there to teach you the game. But, I never felt threatened moving on through the game from there either. And it was nice. It was easy to learn. It was easy to play. I was playing with very pleasant components. There is definitely an appeal to Valwraith, but it just didn't give me what I want from a solo game. It was like a relaxing diversion without giving me a story and a, and a hook and a reason to care. So that's why I've given Valwraith a 53 Fourth game I'm going to talk about is called AO, E-I-Y-O. It's for one or two players, but really it's for one player. It's a 20-minute game by Andreas Braja and from Thundergriff Games. You're a samurai. You're fighting some people. That's the whole thing. Okay, good. There are four stacks of enemies, and they're set up as if they're four corners of a square. And there's one boss in each of these four stacks of enemies and your job is to defeat all of the enemies and have scored a certain score by the time you've run out of cards three times start from the very beginning proviso on this the rule book and it's not a rule book it's a pamphlet it's a very short pamphlet this is part of the matchbox game series they've all tried to do them in really small boxes so there's no rule book or anything like that just a pamphlet it's awful it should be very simple it skips base concepts of the game that it needs to give you even very simple ones just so you understand what's going on it doesn't explain what bosses do or how they work it doesn't even really explain how you flip cards over in order to create the stacks of enemies i had to go on bgg i had to do some working out it took me a while to get my head around what should be a very quick and simple game to learn so not good enough with the rule pamphlet on your turn you draw four weapon cards each of the weapon cards, basically the differences between them is that they show up to four corners on the card that are viable as attacks, and they will relate to the four stacks of enemies, because from the stacks of enemies you turn over three, usually three, with the bosses it's four cards, and then that row of cards is what's attacking you on this turn, that you have to deal with with your weapon cards. There are two things you can do with your weapon cards. You can only use a card on a valid stack... If you wish to say I had a card at a top right corner only, but I want to use it on the bottom right corner in order to move the utility of the card one space clockwise, I have to kill a card from the top of my deck. My deck is my health. I'm going to run through it three times and the game's going to be over. So be aware that you're sacrificing health in order to make the cards more useful. Anyway, let's say I've got a card that's got a top right. On that top right, there will be a, an enemy that is face up with more stacked underneath it probably. I can choose to either attack that enemy and kill it 
or I can choose to deflect the enemy. Now, if I deflect the enemy, I put that card over the top of that stack. None of the enemies in that row are going to attack me this turn, and the top one is going to discard, not go to my victory point pile, which is important because I need them. If I choose to attack with it, I will defeat the topmost enemy and it will go into my victory point pile. However, the card, my weapon card will then get discarded and the remaining enemies in that row are still able to attack me once I finish playing all of my cards. Now, the way they attack is it depends on where they are in the row. So I have to be aware of that when I'm deciding whether to deflect or attack because certain enemies are more powerful when they're at the back of the lineup and some are more powerful in the middle and some are more powerful at the front. As well as that, there are bosses which start in the fourth. There's not usually a fourth place, but with bosses there are. And the bosses have got different effects, and they might prevent you from doing things or make the game harder. And then so you're thinking about, do I need to get through this stack really quickly to get directly to that boss, or can I live with that boss hanging around? Another thing to think about is, because you're playing asymmetrically onto the corners, these rows are not going to refill until you've completely defeated them. When you completely defeat, you pull out another fresh row of three enemies meaning more you're more likely to get hit harder because there are three values now attacking you from that particular corner timing when to do that's crucial if you flip over four brand new rows all at once you're going to get hit really hard you're not going to be able to contain that attack so you're going to want to do it sequentially sort of thing but what you don't want to really do is run down one particular corner ahead of the others because then the cards that only use that corner become useless to you unless you spend health to use their utility further around clockwise so there's some thought to what's going on but it's all very very easy it's very clear there's numbers there it tells you this is what they're going to do this is what they're going to do to attack you draw your cards you get what you get once you've gone all the way through your deck of cards one time, you shuffle them in and you get a super duper weapon that covers all four areas. You go through a second time, you don't get any cards back. You have to buy them because the enemies have got different victory point values. And the ones you've fought, not that you've made runaway by uh, doing the old deflect, you need to take them out. And the number or the amount of victory points you spend from your victory point pile equals to the number of cards you're going to get back. So the more that you can deal with in the first two rounds, the fewer points you're going to have to spend because at the end, you're going to have to defeat all the cards, including the bosses, and then you check your victory point pile and you're trying to get more than 40 points. Are you going to do it? Not in your first game. Not unless you're very, 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 very good at this game somehow or you get very, very, very lucky. It's a game you have to build into and you have to think about and then you start realising, oh, okay, there's maybe a little bit more to this than I thought there was. It is, however... A frustrating game it's a lovely looking game it's got nice art it's got quality little metal coins that come with it it plays in a very small footprint but you do end up kind of oh what can i do here and i have found my progress towards being good at it very very gradual i found it hard to rate ao because i was really frustrated initially because i didn't know how to play and i didn't know if i was playing right and that's another sort of trap of solo games because there's no one to bounce ideas off how many times when you're playing a game does someone go oh are you sure that works like that or does it maybe work like this and you go mm, and you work out actually half the time you're wrong half the time they're wrong you gotta look through the rules maybe go on bgg you work it out between you there's no feedback loop on a solo game so if you're getting something wrong you're just getting something wrong you could do it forever so that's why it's unforgivable to have a bad rule book and i 
just got really frustrated with AO for doing that because the rules should be simple. It's a simple game. I've just told you how to play. I could hand you the cards now. You would be able to play from what I've said. Ah, plus or minus a few boss powers, which are completely not in any way clarified, by the way, by Thunder <laughs> Thundergriff Games within this box. Hard to rate. I've been getting better at it. I've still never hit the 40 points. And that's in six games of it. So it's a 59. But it's a 59 with the possibility of rising. Because that would have been somewhere in the 30s after my first game. Because I wasn't happy at all. I'm very annoyed. I was on nights as well. I'm quite grumpy on nights. That's a secret. And where's it going to go? I'm hoping it's going to go up. There's a mode in there where you can actually mix in harder cards if you do feel like you get too good at the game. I'm a long way from that. I have brought it to work subsequently. I haven't actually played more, but it's still on my mind. When I'm describing it now, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, actually, for how quick it is, I, I quite want to get that out again and give it a quick 15, 20-minute bash and see if I can get better at it. So there's definitely something there to IO. I just think that Thundergriff should have done a better job in how they put it out. So there you go. IO, 59. For now. Let's get on to the two really good games. Now, this one's a bit of a cheaty peaty because it definitely takes more than one player, but I'm going to review it. I had only played it solo when I wrote out my notes. I've played it with more players now, but we'll ignore that. It's Cartographers. It's one to 100 players. 100 players. That makes sense. 40-minute game. It's from Jordi Adan, and it's from Thunderworks Games, which is why I kept trying to trip over Thunder Griff Games last time because this one's Thunderworks, and I get the two mixed up in my head because I'm simple. It's a flip and write. And at the end of it, you're going to have drawn up a fantasy map with forests and fields and water and there's already mountains and there's ruins. And it's like a very bad fantasy map you get at the beginning of a fantasy book. And I'm going to be honest with you, my rating of this, my enjoyment of it, and yours probably is going to directly relate to how much you enjoy looking at a map at the beginning of a book. Because I enjoy looking at the map at the beginning of a book and maybe you do maybe you don't but the fact of drawing a little one kind of makes me happy inside okay you're going to draw four goals because there's four seasons in this game and the four goals a b c d and they come so that they they deal with different terrains that you're going to draw and at the end of the first season you're going to score goals a and b second season b and c third season c and d and the fourth season d and a as you guessed it What's going to happen during the game is that you're going to flip a card and the card is going to give you one of the four terrains that you can draw and it's going to tell you a shape, a polyomino shape that you have to draw anywhere on your map unless it tells you you've got to draw on ruins which is sort of a card that happens and there's ruins dotted around the place and you can flip and turn and twist that shape but you just have to maintain that the base integrity of it geometrical integrity and then you draw it on anywhere on your own private little map that you have in a grid. Each of the cards that tells you what polyomino shape to draw has got a value, and each season has got a maximum value of cards. So the first seasons are longer than the end seasons, but none of them are particularly long. It's just a few flips off cards. Once you've flipped over enough cards and you've drawn in enough polyominoes, wherever you decide to do that, you're then going to score the goals. And the goals are going to say your biggest block, your second biggest block of cities, your trees that link to mountains. There's various ones. And it's all about the goals that are going to drive how you are each are drawing your map. And yet, I have always found people drawing different maps. And I've 
seen huge similarities after a couple of turns, which is interesting and shows, I think, a bit of cleverness in the goals. You can see here I'm being positive. This is one of the top two solo games. I like this game. I've enjoyed it. Okay. Also, you can earn coins, which will score you points. You do that by surrounding mountains, which are pre-drawn on the map. And also, when you're getting the cards, some of them will, I'd say, use a bigger shape or use this smaller shape and gain a coin, which is handy because it just gives you a slight income in points. Now, you're going to lose points each season for spaces which are blank surrounding monsters. Monsters, you say, Ronan, where do they come from? Well, each season, you shuffle in one monster card into that deck of cards. When a monster comes out, when you're playing solo, there's sort of a very, very simple AI that says start in the top whichever corner and go clockwise or anti-clockwise from there. And the first valid space you get to, you must draw this particular shape of monsters. If you were to play with more than one player, although that's banned from this podcast, I know basically you pass your sheet round and the next person draws it on there for you and really annoys you and you poke them with your pencil. Okay, good. So you lose points if you have a surrounding monsters and that can throw you off because you're trying to build in a certain area in order to do these goals. But then the monster appears in another area and you start getting annoyed with it and you're like, why did you do that monster? I'm just sitting here looking at you, frowning at the card, saying you're a bad person. Kobold or whatever it might be. Right. In the solo game, you're trying to get to a target score and basically whatever score you get to, you minus points for each of the goals. So the goals say like, you know, this goal's worth minus 17, this was worth minus 12, whatever. You add those together, take it away from all the points you've scored and then you're trying to get to a certain level to say, oh, that's how good I am. I have not hit the top level yet because I'm really bad at cartographers, but that's okay because I still enjoy it. It's just drawing things on the map. I just like that. Some actual points to make. I will say to you that it's tight and that they haven't been tempted to throw in 2,000 cards in here for the sake of, I'm going to put air bunnies up, variety or, or depth or whatever, because what they've done is kept it tight. There are four different monster cards. There are 16 goals. There are only 13 explore cards. It shows confidence to me. It feels to me like the designer was like, I don't need to add lots into this. I've created something that works and is tight and is balanced and creates difficult choices without having millions and millions of things thrown on top of it. I know that this set of cards works and this is what I'm going with. And it does work. And that confidence comes through the game. And I feel confident that I'm in safe hands when I'm playing it because there's not a tons of tons. Now, there are more expansions coming out. I think they were kickstarted. I missed it. I wasn't playing cartographers when that Kickstarter was going on. I'm just going to wait for them to hit the shops, but I will be buying them. There's a lovely balance of short-term versus long-term scoring, as in I need to score each round on these goals. But if I plan for goal C in round one, I'm missing out the A and B scoring opportunity, but can I be amazing on goal C? Sometimes you can. I can't, but sometimes people can. I've heard. So there's a nice, and again, a very quick game flip. Let's not go wild. But there's a nice thing of like, oh, oh, should I go ahead for that one or should I take these few points now? It's another pleasant, relaxing experience. But there's way more to it than I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm doing it. Why are we here? I'm just doing the stand. It's got this satisfaction of having created something which I feel like I've got complete control almost over what I've created And I feel like I'm responsible if I haven't scored very well because I haven't played well. Not that I've been kicked around by things in the game. I feel like I could have made better choices or the choices I made just didn't work out. And I like that sense of calm, peace, control, challenge, slight twist of the monsters, which 
is enough to really affect your game. You know, they, they can cost you 20 points, which will knock you down two categories in the scoring, and you'll be like, oh, I should have done better there. I just think Cartographers is, is a really nice product. Now, I know Sean has recently played it multiplayer. I've also, ignoring this, played it multiplayer. It is a very similar game, very slight twist on it. Maybe we'll talk about that when Sean comes back on in a couple of episodes. But Cartographers, I've given as a solo experience an 80, meaning I enjoyed it. I thought it was a very good game. My solo hit of these past couple of months is Warp's Edge. One player game, 45 minutes, Scott Arms, a designer from Renegade Game Studios. This is the second game in the solo hero series from Renegade Games in which they tried to create this line where you are a hero and they're giving you a story and you play a solo game. The first one was Proving Grounds. I don't know if any of you remember me reviewing Proving Grounds a while ago. It's atrocious. And they've done a huge disservice to Warp's Edge by linking it in any way. I think it was by Scott Arms as well. That was terrible, dice rolling game, which is just a mess. This is fantastic. You are in a small spaceship, a fighter. You are caught in a time loop. You've been thrown and you're flying directly at a mothership, which is surrounded by lots of ships, and you know there's no chance you've got of defeating all of these. However, once you get to a point where you've lost, you will loop back. And you're going to start a run at the same enemies again and loop back again. And the number of these called warps, warps edge, warps that you do depends upon how you set up the game. But you're basically trying to defeat the mothership. The enemies come in a stack of cards and they are levels one, two and three. You need to get through that whole stack of cards eventually and then defeat the mothership. And that's how you're going to win the game. If you run out of loops to do this or warps to do this, I should call it warps, warps to do this or you run out of health on your ship, then you have lost the game. And the way we're going to do that is via the mechanism of bag building. You start with a pool of tokens. You draw those tokens, five of them. You use them to face the four enemies that you're facing. Once those are used up, Enemies might shoot back at you and damage you. You then draw five more tokens. You deal with what's in front of you. Enemies might shoot back and you're doing that until you run out of tokens in your bag, in which case some things get reset and you start the warp again. However, let's throw in what's going on there. With your tokens, you'll be able to shoot or evade enemies. Enemies have got different shoot or evade levels, especially depending upon their difficulty level. Difficulty 3 is going to be much stronger than difficulty 1. You may put a token to shoot or evade. If you hit the total of either shoot or evade of an enemy, you're going to destroy that enemy. They're going to get thrown into a discard pile. They'll be replaced by the time you come around to draw more tokens again. If you haven't defeated them, but you have shot or evaded them this turn, they don't get to shoot back at you. And that's a large part of the strategy because I'm, I don't want to get hit and I don't want to die. But sometimes I'm going to have to take some out completely and leave other ones to shoot me. Or sometimes I'm not. You can get energy. Energy is going to allow you to purchase more tokens or it's going to allow you to boost up your shields because shields go replenishable. Once they get past your shields, they're going to start hitting your health. Now, there are different ships for you to be, different fighter ships. And some have got more shields, more health, different powers. So... The importance of boosting up your shields is going to vary. However, also every time you lose shields, you're going to take tokens out of your discard pile so you can thin out some of the less good tokens in your discard pile. However, your tokens are the timer of the game. You don't want to be left with too few tokens because then you're not going to have enough time to get your way through the waves of enemies and defeat the mothership. There are also special powers. Now, each fighter, as well as having different abilities and shield levels and all that, comes with a different set of tokens. Now, the tokens have just got P-O-W-E or R on them. Power 
However, there's a handy little token tray, and for each ship, its different tokens are linked to the P-O-W-E or R, and that is a big part of how they're different in how they play. So that if you gain an O token and you, you pull it out, that O does whatever the O power is for this particular ship, and that is a kind of cool thing to keep in mind as you're playing through. So, we talked about shooting, evading, destroying the ships. The ones that have been shot or evaded are going to shoot back at you. At the end of the round, you're going to draw back up to there being four enemies in the row, and then you're going to draw five tokens, as I said, and you're going to keep on going. Well, there are no tokens left in your bag. That is the end of the warp. You maintain your shield and health levels. However, the enemies in the discard pile now all get shuffled together and go back on top of the deck. So if you start getting to level two, which is quite quick, and then level three enemies, they are now going to be mixed up and coming around. So it won't be all the harder enemies coming out at once, but a level three enemy might come out immediately and it mixes up how you have to deal with it. But you've seen those enemies. So you should have an idea what their particular powers are and how you might want to be dealing with them which will again be influenced by how good your ship is and what your special powers are. Also, at the end of each warp, you get to draw a special power for yourself from a deck of special powers, which are pilot powers. You start with one, you get more for each warp, and they will also give you other opportunities, as well as the fact that you would have purchased better tokens, probably got rid of some of your worst tokens. So your bag is becoming more full and more powerful, and you get more special powers, but you're facing more powerful enemies earlier on. And there is a great progression here. There's an arc. I am getting better at facing this particular the deck of enemies i'm getting more powerful but they're going to hit me harder earlier if i ever defeat all of the enemies then the mothership will come into play now mothership hasn't hit you before this usually or and you haven't been able to hit the mothership usually but now we're talking the big guns it's firing very strong at you some you can't evade some you can't shoot with lasers or lasers won't block them and stuff like that and you've had to keep that in mind all along while you're building up your bag because it's going to be difficult to defeat that mothership because you're going to be tired by this end you're going to be running out of tokens you'll have gone through all the enemies you will be powerful but the mothership is always going to be a challenge and there's a particularly cool mothership which is basically a transformer that you get a certain amount of runs at the risk called the revenant and it turns flips over into a giant robot the harder motherships are really hard to defeat i mean the level one mothership is hard to defeat you have to play a few times and you have to play well before you're able to defeat that one the level four ones are taking it to pretty ridiculous levels warp's edge full of tough decisions full of theme full of little surprises full of comboing not chaos progression things that you can see coming an arc stand up moments when you're like oh I really need to pull these tokens out. And have I, if I've been stupid and I need a load of evade tokens and I haven't bought a load of evade tokens, that's down to me. If I have bought them, man, this is the time when I really need to draw them. Draw them out. Oh, I didn't get them. But don't worry. I've got some special powers. I've got a hold. So there's a hold on each of the ships and they can hold a certain number of tokens that you can then bring into play when you need to. And if you're smart, you'll time that right. Or sometimes you get unlucky, but mostly you'll time it right. And you'll be like, ah, it's exactly the moment I need the extra energy to buy that, to do this, to put that back around again. And man, I feel like I'm being clever in this game or not, but at least I feel like I have agency and there's something going on and I'm caught in a story and it's very, very exciting. There are different strategies to discover. For the different ships you can be, but also for the different motherships. And like I say, it can be very challenging. Play on level one a few times. It might take you a few goes to win this on level one. And then you won't always win it on level one. Because level one is hard. And I like that. I'm not like playing through a learning game. To be honest, Vignette 1 in Railwraith is just a learning game. It's super easy. At Warp's Edge, I'm getting challenged straight away. I really enjoy that. 
There are four fighters and five motherships to explore. It is a fantastic game. I'm not that into solo gaming. I love Warp's Edge. I've given it a 91 score. It comes with the highest level of recommendation. And if you have got time to play a solo game or two, and you're thinking, "Mm, I don't really know where to start, I would suggest Warp's Edge would be a great place to start. Okay, those are the six solo games. I'm going to quickly go through three games that I've backed on Kickstarter and four games that I've purchased to come into the collection. And the ones that I've backed are Hanamakoji Geisha's Road. Hanamakoji is a fabulous, quick two-player game in which it's very directly against each other, but it doesn't feel mean, although it does a bit. The meanness comes in the tightness of the actions. You just feel like, ah, why do these actions hate me rather than the other person? And that is a load of fun. So I've backed for more Hanamakoji. Paint the Roses. Seems like a very interesting and twisty cooperative game, which has got loads of buzz. So I've backed that. And then Verdant, which is sort of the third in the line of Calico, love it. Cascadia, meh. Verdant, I'm hopeful. Let's see how that goes. They're either going to make or break this series for me. In terms of games that I physically received, we did get a copy of Magnet the First City which uh, James Nader has sent along to us from Nader Games. It was kickstarted, so I'm going to be having a look of that. That was a review copy. Games I've bought, The Loop, the co-op about... Oh, just like Warp's Edge, going to loop it around in time. Maybe that's why I keep calling it Loop. It's in my head. Ah, Realisation of being simple. Okay, that I'm excited about. Icky, which I talked about last episode from So Sorry We Are French, that uh, was a hit at LobsterCon, and Sean has been raving about it, so I thought I'd better give that a go. Another one, unfortunately, Sean talked me into this as well, is Almadi, the tile layer. I'm going to give that a little look. Where it's very spatial about how things combo with each other, trying to collect symbols. And the last one I got was Witchstone, which is very pink. It's a Knizia co-design, uh, very much a Euro, with a spatial element where you're trying to sort of several actions that combo off each other to collect things i've read through the rules i i i'm on the fence we'll see how that one goes but anyway i hope you enjoyed that i hope it's given you some thoughts maybe some guidance if you're thinking about trying a solo game you've probably been shouting at the uh, at your device if you play solo games i've played any of those because i definitely i have strong opinions on solo games because i don't really enjoy them so if i like them i like them a lot because i'm quite surprised and then a lot of them i'm like oh no i'm not too fussed with this i'd always generally rather be playing with people and having that social side but there's a couple there that were very good right this has been the game pit podcast we're a proud member of the dice tower network if you want to chat to us you can head to board game geek and look up the game pit guild and you can always get hold of us there and we will see your messages send us an email at the game pit podcast at gmail.com and follow us on twitter game pit podcast to keep up to date with what's going on thank you very much and we'll catch you next time music by e aaron Oh, oh, oh.